one of the things that really appeals to me is that to me the 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 main character of an OSR game uh, for a, for a really well run one anyhow or a really well run campaign the main character of a campaign is not the players it's the world the world is the main character and the players are changing it and the the joy at the end of that campaign is seeing you know where the world was at the start where it was at the end of the campaign and the juice is oh here's all the stories of how we made that happen not what any individual character may have done right you're creating a history i think there's there's the difference you're creating a history not a story so a story has got a main character that's the player a history is the main the main character is the world and you're telling that world's history Rescuers. My name is Che Webster and this is Roleplay Rescue, the podcast about rediscovering our lost roleplaying hobby. Another conversation to share with you today, this time someone who has recently inspired and reinvigorated my hobby through his excellent podcast. While we did begin in interview mode, the primary focus of this conversation was to chat about fantasy game worlds and some of the ways in which those were particularly important to more old school flavours of the hobby. Big thank you up front to my guest, Kevin, and I hope that you'll find this as fascinating as I did. This is Season 11, Episode 19, Talking Worlds with Kevin from the Red Caps. Kevin is the host of the Red Caps podcast, the podcast where he dips his hat into the blood of his listeners and rambles on about old school role-playing games. Hailing from Canada, the Red Caps first aired back in September 2020 and has, at the time of recording, just blasted through the first century of episodes, a true milestone for any podcaster. Beyond the podcast, Kevin uses his fame to raise awareness and funds for the charity Extra Life, a program of the Children's Miracle Network Hospitals, and the donations fund critical treatments, healthcare services, pediatric medical equipment, and charitable care. Welcome, Kevin, and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. That was a very, very uh, a gracious introduction. I don't know if I would say fame, but maybe infamy. Um, but it is it is awesome that uh, so many people have been able to help out, especially this month here on, on raising some, some money for Extra Life. And whenever anyone uses the word infamy, I immediately have that that um, shot from, is it Carry On Cleo with infamy, infamy. They've all got it infamy. Um, <laughs> is it Kenneth Williams even maybe that line? I don't know. Um, I'm not sure. I'm that old. Anyway, it's great to have you on the show. Um, Thank you very much. So I know that ostensibly we're here to witter on a little bit about worlds and a little bit about old school stuff. But to be honest with you, I'm kind of keeping this free form today. And if it's all right with you, I'd like to start with the backstory, which I'm sure listeners of the podcast know all about. But, you know, not everyone listens to everybody else's podcast. So what is your backstory? How did you get into role playing games? So actually, uh, you'll kind of get a maybe the first one I've done because I haven't really talked about my backstory really on my podcast. So this will be, this will be new for, for listeners. Um, 
So I come, I live in Canada and where I grew up is a tiny, tiny province in Canada. You're in Japan right now, correct? No, I'm in England. You're in England. Sorry. Sorry. It's a uh, wheat or bushy. I get you two mixed up a lot. Um, uh, well, but- I'm sure Rob would be absolutely horrified <laughs> to know that. <laughs> but um, so if, if you're not familiar with, with Canada, um, there's a tiny, tiny province on the East Coast called Prince Edward Island. It's ultra small. Um, and when I was growing up, it was also very isolated from the rest of the country. So for, for me, there was, there was very few people that would play playing role-playing games at all. Um, and so I had a very small group that I played with and we played a little bit of, of second edition. Um, and that was, but I didn't have any exposure to any games outside of D and D at all, because they just mm-hmm. didn't make it to where I lived. <laughs> um, and um, then I kind of fell out of it um, as I went into college. Um, I was always a uh, more into computer gaming. Um, so a lot of RPGs in that sense and, uh, you know, MMOs and MUDs back before that, um, if anybody knows what a MUD is. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, just played a lot of those. And then I think uh, sometime in the late stages of 4E, um, I found Pathfinder again. Um, I kind of went to it and then bounced off of Pathfinder and just kind of observed the hobby more, more, more than being in it. Mm-hmm. And then when when 5e came around and, and the excitement for 5e came back, I, I dove into 5e some and bounced off of it. And I was like, no, I'm not liking this. I, I need to find something a little bit different and stumbled into the OSR sphere. And that's just kind of where I've been ever since. So for the last many years, that's been the gaming area that I've been playing around in and find most comfortable. And when you say the 4e era, was that something you tried or just were aware of at that time? No, I tried it a tiny bit. Um, again, because because I was I was like I said, much into computer gaming, and mm. the pitch that somebody had told me about, like one of my friends said, "Oh, you used to play Dungeons and Dragons." I said, "Yeah." He goes, "Well, you know, they, they've they're trying to make it more like a video game. They're they're bringing in a lot of systems around that." I was like, oh, "Okay, well, maybe." Um, and so I, I tried it out, and I liked it from from the tactical standpoint. Like I really mm. enjoy four E from a um, logic tactic chess type game. Mm-hmm. I thought that was real. I thought the rules in there were really good, but it was so much rules. Um, mm-hmm. And it was, it just, it didn't have the same flavor that I remember that I had remembered. And I guess that's maybe always that whole nostalgia. You look back at what was before mm-hmm. with rose colored glasses. And I was like, that's eh, not the same. It's not, I'm not getting the same, same kick off of it. Um, so I just kind of put it aside. Right, so you started with second edition AD and D, I'm assuming. Yeah, um, from that, and um, so well, did you go back to that at any point in your journey back to the OSR? No, or did you skip it. No, I kind of skipped. it. I went right back to to uh, to basic. Um, right. And I, once I started playing basic, I just I was like, yeah, this is because I didn't really play much basic at all whenever I was a kid. Um, we played mostly second edition. It basic mm. was, it just wasn't again small island we only had what we had available to us um and so second edition books were around but when when i went back to play basic i was like oh this is great i just kind of i don't know it it spoke to me so i dove into it and it's just that's all i haven't really come up for air yet it's uh, (laughs) a it's been great and when you say basic do you mean 1977 1981 or 1983 uh 1981 so bx um so the the beck me i i have uh you know everybody's got a real encyclopedia i've got a couple copies of it here um i like the 
depth that it provides in terms of things like domain play. Mm-hmm. But I have never, <laughs> I've never <laughs> ever gotten to a level uh, high enough to use any of that. Um, so for me, I like BX because it's simple and it's uh, it kind of cuts off at the sweep point. But I'll I'll dip into Beckme and, and pull rules from there if I want to experiment mm-hmm. with stuff. So I, I keep the books around simply because they're good reference material for that. Yeah. Holmes basic. Uh, if I want to do that, I'll just play OD and D. I, I, I think <laughs> I think I think OD and D is a better version of Holmes basic than Holmes basic is. <laughs> oh wow, lovely controversial view here on roleplay rescue. Um, okay, so so what do you most enjoy about roleplaying games? I, I've got a couple of hints coming from what you said, but you know what do you love about them? Um, so I like whenever. Uh, we'll probably get to this in a minute, but I really like having cool worlds where um, you can explore the world and you get a sense of being able to impact it. Um, I like the idea of, um, you know, the cool abilities and combats and all that. That's fun, but that's, that's kind of like your dessert. Um, the, the meal for me of the game is going through and finding, finding cool things that you can impact and, and then watching how that changes stuff. Um, some of the best games I've had have been, uh, where, I, where I, as a player, so, you know, depending which hat you're wearing, but as a player, the, some of the best games I've had have been when the DM is also running other groups, or if I miss a session and I come back and see how much the world has changed and you're mm-hmm. like, you guys did what? And now we've got this whole new reality to deal with. So having a believable world in that sense is big. Um, I'm not a person, I can't do voices uh, and stuff like that. So I'm not, I'm not a person that's there for the, for, you know, voice acting, but being able to actually, um, you know, act as your character would in terms of the decisions that you make, Mm. um, and, and putting yourself in that position, I think is, is important. And I like the, the clever problem solving side of things. Like I'm a big fan of, of, you know, having, proper inventory tracking and time tracking and, and using the problem solving aspects of it as well. So those are kind of the areas that pull me towards Yeah. Okay. as well. I like to t- tinker. So that's BX is, is helpful because I like to tinker and pretend like I know what I'm talking about at times with rules. Mm. <laughs> so it gives us a few clues on my next question. I was going to ask what, what makes the old school D and D sort of your go-to and I'm getting a few clues towards that, but go on. Why? Yeah. The, 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 the easy, easy ability to tinker, um, mm-hmm. BX and OD&D both have enough game there that you can just play it and you could play that for the rest of your life and be fine. But there's also huge gaping holes or not, maybe not holes, but there's huge areas that the DM can can play with and, and modularly swap in and out really easy um, and make it however they want. So like I've, I've had a lot, a lot of people ask me, you know, what I, what, why I stopped playing 5e. When I, when I stopped playing 5e, I was like, I'm done. Uh, I'll play it as a player, but I have no interest in ever running it as a DM. Right. Um, and th- when they ask why, they're like, you know, 5e super modular and you can play it. And it is, but it's, I find it's, you have to strip so much out to get it to where I want it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it is perfectly modular. You can do a lot of the stuff. I don't think the games are really that far apart in terms of like, you know, the, the ability to mod the game, but I think it starts from a different premise and one is starts way more powerful than the other one starts. And I prefer to start mm. in the more humble areas and, and work my way up rather than have to strip it out to, to get back up to that. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's always been the, the big turnoff of 5e and I play it at the school uh, with the kids, students there a uh, fair old bit over the last few years, uh, but it is the power level. It's the superheroes, you know, that sort of always put me off really. And the fact that it takes about 
know, an hour and a half to make a decent character. Um, <laughs> whereas yeah. I know that with BX, you know, it was rolled six dice. Um, pick the class, and that's largely irrelevant what your stats are as well, apart from hitting the minimum. <laughs> um, yeah, um, so one of the things I realized when I started replaying basic recently is that um, I'm sort of rolling uh, my my uh, stats up and then I kind of agonizing for a few minutes over like which class to use, which would match those. And then suddenly realized that the stats aren't going to influence that at all, really. Um, yeah, very, you know. very few. It's, it's the biggest the biggest thing for BX in terms of your stats is whether or not you get that XP bonus. Yeah. Um, and Outside of that, the stats aren't that important. Mm-hmm. You can make them important. The DM can, you know, again, the modular ability of, of BX, you can add rules to make stats more important if you wish to, mm-hmm. um, but it's not inherently in the game. And it, it really allows you just to pick up a player and go with it and, and not stress about it. Mm-hmm. You, you had a recent episode where you were talking about um, player creation and GURPS. Um, mm-hmm. And it was funny because I had, had a conversation I'm sure it was probably on your Patreon before that, but um, before you had, before that episode aired, I was having a conversation with Barry um, mm-hmm. from the Shadow of the GM about the fantasy trip because him and I have been playing that a little bit. Mm. And I, I was saying that I, I always found um, when I looked at at uh, GURPS, kind of what you what you were touching on in your thing, it was it was almost like choice paralysis mm-hmm. uh, because it wasn't cut down enough at the beginning um it's not so much that it's difficult it's that if there's too much choice you spend forever staring at it because you because yeah. you feel like you're going to make the wrong choice whereas mm-hmm. with bx because there's fewer choices you don't ever feel like you're going to make the wrong one right you you discover who it is as you go and and uh, you don't have to worry about it like oh i, I made the wrong choice this character is useless now <laughs> yeah no i mean for me it's like there's too few choices um really in a classic D game or at least that's the way i feel a lot of the time you know the fighter is such a broad um definition of a class you know uh, the archetype of someone who can hit things um what's really interesting in, in sort of more modern games is that you get more differentiation you know uh, if you go to um dnd fifth edition that we've been talking about you know when you pick your fighter you've got a, cho- a choice there of how you want to be a fighter you know do you want to up your armor do you want to have two weapons do you want to be a an archer you know all those kind of choices those sub choices that go in there and i kind of like that to some degree but i'm with you because you just end up with like which choice do i take <gasps> and it's especially terrifying if you're going to a long campaign if you know that the game's going to last a little while or you suspect it will um and of course in bx it doesn't matter because you'll be dead in the end of the first session anyway <laughs> um so you just roll and run don't you well yeah i mean although i'll be honest the, the characters i've i've played that have had the worst stats where I'm like, well, this guy's going to be dead by the end of the first session is the one that lasts longer than everybody else. And just seems to have the stupidest luck ever. Um, But the way that you get around that whole, all fighters are the same. They're all just go and hit things is Mm. the D the, the DM or GM has to be willing to lean into what differentiates characters. And that is the gear. Mm. So you have to, so many people seem to be really hesitant to go and just roll random gear and, and allow huge hordes or crazy weird stuff to happen um, in the name of game balance. Um, but if you allow that to happen, if you, if you, you know, let crazy weapons just fall in the hands of your players and, and stuff, that's where the differential comes from. Right. And as mm-hmm. players go, Oh, well, I got this cool sword. And I, I guess, I, you know, maybe you can build in some stuff like, okay, you have to go training so you can do a two handed and you can get all those same, features that you got but you, it just it comes on a little bit slower and it comes on through the game rather than being a choice that you made at the beginning of it 
mm. um, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And it touches on also one of the key things I've said many, many times about D&D, classic D&D, is essentially what makes characters different is their gear. You know, as you know, first of all, the choices you make at level one, if you're starting there, um, you know, the gear choices you make define your character's success or failure. And if you don't take chainmail, forget it. Um, <laughs> at, like, as a fighter or a cleric. Um, and then secondly, like as you go forward, like I said, the items you get, and that if you find like a magic weapon or a magic item of some kind, all that kind of thing, that really makes a difference, you know. Um, and it's well, it's fun that I guess. Yeah, I, I look at it. I'm not sure if you if you play if you've played much PC gaming, but um, I kind of look at old school D and D a little bit like Diablo, where mm-hmm. um, you know you you went you do a dungeon dive, and it's all about what cool stuff you bring back, and that cool stuff really defines your character quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Whereas maybe newer school games might be more defined by. And I know this is a trope to say it, and I'm not saying it in a negative way, but like World of Warcraft or something where there's a bunch of abilities that you get and you have to pick and choose those abilities. And mm-hmm. those are what define you. Um, and then the gear is kind of secondary. Um, but so I, I kind of see that as, as, the, as the, the, the trade-off there. Neither one of them are, are right or wrong. It just depends on how you want to go. And I like the idea of the gear because as a player, I don't control that. So mm-hmm. I have to react to it. Whereas with the picking and choosing of abilities, I'm picking and choosing, so you know I, I hold on to things a little bit tighter because I oh I got, I got this character just as I want them or <laughs> what have you or or it's I'm pre-planning. I I, I don't like I'm, I'm a big person of I don't like seeing you know people planning of characters 16 levels ahead of themselves. And mm. to me, that's that's it, not the same as you know me in real life making my five-year career plan it's it's not the same thing it's <laughs> it becomes much more of a of a meta thing at that point i'm just it's, it's not a big thing for me mm. all right before we dive into chatting a little bit about worlds um i just wanted to ask did you have any particular tips for anyone who's coming back to the hobby um because that's what my show is about so i just wanted to know if you had any thoughts on that um if you can uh, to alleviate the that anxiety that everybody gets when they come back about you know the the imposter syndrome of I don't know if I should be doing this, play with people who have never played before. Introduce it to somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can play it with kids, all the better. Uh, like you know, my, I've got a I've got a young son, and I've been taking him into into the beginnings of the hobby and showing him different game systems and stuff. And it's great because there's a zero judgment in the game as a DM. It, everything is wonderful and new to, to the player and it takes all the pressure off of you. So I think um, if you're coming back and fresh and you're just trying to get a little bit of your mojo back and you don't want to feel like people are judging you play with people who have never played before because they'll, they'll only see it as good. They're going to have a good time and they're not going to, you know, rule lawyer you or notice if you do goof up something, which how can you really goof up something in a game of pretend? And, yeah, I think that's the best way to, to come back into it. And then as, as, as confidence grows, start bringing in other players and or, or bring in players that, you know, won't do that to you. But mm. yeah, that's a good tip. I, one of my things I love most is introducing students to to the hobby. And it's always a laugh. It's always picks me up. So, yeah, that's yeah. a great tip. <laughs> Okay, so what sparked us having a conversation was a question, really, that you had about world building. I know that you've been speaking, so the background of this is that you've been speaking to Chris Goneman in an interview. He's the creator of Basic Fantasy Role-Playing Game, which is one of the earliest sort of ostensibly OSR games um, where you had, on the one hand, Matt Finch and uh, the guys doing Osric, 
and creating the retro clones. And then obviously uh, you had um, Labyrinth Lord came through around about the same time as well. And then there was Chris off taking the third edition SRD and stripping it right down to a game that emulated basic uh, D&D from back in the day, although he will never admit that it's based on basic D&D for legal reasons, um, and creating this this new this kind of new game. Um, which of course in its own way you know, as a free product out there is an amazing thing but you'd asked him on on the episode why he because he does that as an open source project why there weren't worlds that were open sourced so um, i just kind of curious about where that came from first of all what you know what was the thinking there so uh, what what kind of got me down that route is i've recently said and since i've said it i've broken the rule now like three or four times. But earlier this year, I, I said, okay, I'm done buying game systems because mm-hmm. I have all the game systems I think I will ever need for the rest of my life. And I, I, instead of buying more rules, I wanted to focus on buying adventures and settings mm-hmm. and things like that. Like I said, I've, I've broken that rule several times since then. But um, <laughs> when I started looking at, at settings, there are a lot of cool small settings. Um, you know, there's things like the Midderlands and all stuff like that that's, that are high quality, really cool things, but they're very small and contained. Mm. Um, and I was looking at Mystera quite a bit and I was like, you know, this epically huge world, why isn't there, you know, a, why wasn't, why wasn't that revived in the OSR? Like, why wasn't there something like that that came about from that same community? And when I was talking with, with Chris, what kind of, you know, drove me to, to ask about that is, is the open source nature of the way basic fantasy works is that yes, his voice is all throughout that game and he's got a huge hand in, in a massive amount of it, but there's also a ton of that content that's coming from, you know, fans of the game that are, mm. uh, you know, contributing to it. And I, I just thought in, in the age of the internet where we've got so many amazing tools and it's, we've, we're, we're spread all over the place with so many different experiences. Why couldn't we create a, you know, an open source game world, the closest, if, if, if I had my, my genie wish where I could snap and it would be, be created, it would be something similar to what Harn is, mm. but completely open source free for everybody to use and contribute to with a set of guidelines around, you know, where things go. Like I love that mm. you mentioned it recently on, on your world's episode that you, mm. that you enjoyed Harn. And I love the fact that Harn has that hard cap on date where yeah. it's like from this date, uh, forward, no new material will ever be made. Everything below, we will, we will flesh out to the tiniest tiniest minutia, but everything past that is up to the players. And I love that. I think that's great. I think that's if you were going to do that sort of a project, that's the way to approach it. Mm. I absolutely love all the maps as well. Oh, it's such good stuff in there. Yeah. Finding but, ways of using all that stuff. It's just like, it's amazing. And, um, and of course, system agnostic, which is interesting as well. So you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's an interesting project. Okay. So that was the basis of that, where you're coming from. Um, now you called into the show. Now I know you haven't heard this episode because it hasn't aired yet because I'm working weeks ahead. Um, <laughs> but you asked me the same, the same thing. Why hasn't there been more worlds, big worlds created, you know, um, fantasy over the last sort of 20 years or so. And my initial response to that, and I don't mind sharing again, for the benefit of those tuning in here. Um, My initial response to that was very, very simple. I've got a theory that essentially a big part of why the hobby isn't focused on world, and I mean outside of the OSR as well as the OSR itself, I'm just thinking broadly, is because I think the settings, and that word is key, settings, not worlds, are being created. They are just a backdrop for the action of the players. So if you think about 
much much modern game the regular kind of game that's played these days by most people using probably fifth edition D&D or something very similar what is happening is that you've got these very powerful player characters and GMs running with those players in a way that they're quite happy to do things that make you and I probably uncomfortable or well, certainly make me uncomfortable break the rules so that someone can do something cool um completely like add stuff to the world that just gets made up on the spot in the middle of the game session because it's cool or sounds cool without any real thought about the larger impact of that upon this the world as you like and and i think the reason for that is very simple i think it's because these are being thought of as settings not as worlds and i think there's a distinction one is a backdrop to the action that's a setting and a world is something that is in itself you know, a creation, and I'm thinking here about Tolkien's sub-created kind of idea of Middle Earth, for example, is a thing, an entity that exists in and of itself in, you know, through the author's imagination. And then you go and enter it, but the world is, you know, and you get to interact with that world and explore it and try and change it, but you've got to try and change it through your character, not through saying cool things at the table. Yeah, I've said... um to several people, I probably should have mentioned this at the top when you're asking what appeals to me about OSR games. One of the things that really appeals to me is that to me, the 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 main character of an OSR game uh, for, a, for a really well-run one anyhow, or a really well-run campaign, the main character of a campaign is not the players, it's the world. Yeah. The world is the main character and the players are changing it and the, the joy at the end of that campaign is seeing you know, where the world was at the start, where it was at the end of the campaign and the juice is, Oh, here's all the stories of how we made that happen. Mm-hmm. Not what any individual character may have done. Right. You're creating a history. I think there's, there's the difference. You're creating a history, not a story. So a story has got a main character. That's the player. A history is the main, the main character is the world. Mm-hmm. And you're telling that world's history. Whereas a story you're telling, you know, the, an individual history of a person, um, and I think part of why that appeals to me in the OSR game, you, you made, made a, a, a quick joke about it, but yeah, players will die. So if, if your whole game is built around telling the story of a person and that person dies, that feels bad, mm-hmm. right? It, it can, it can interrupt the flow of the game. It can make people like, Oh, I don't want to play this anymore. Cause you know, this cool character I made died. But if you're, if you're, reason for playing it is that you want to create a history of a world and you're interested to see where that world goes then the individual players don't really matter and you're there more for that um and i think that's that's a big thing and maybe you're right that maybe that's the reason why we see see more settings is because gaming over the last long while has definitely seemed at least in my opinion to move more towards individuals even less so than like so if 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 in my opinion the main character is the is the the world i think there's another generation of people who think the main character is the party Mm -hmm. and then now i think we're at the point where it's the main character is individual characters and each one of them is their own main character um so now i think we're even past the point where the party matters it's more about what an individual person is i think it's i don't think that's bad or wrong it's just it's not what juices it for me but Mm -hmm. um I think that's the change. And maybe that's why we haven't seen those those big products because a world doesn't matter when you're just talking about an individual, if you're playing a game about an individual. So one of the reasons I'm really grateful to you and some of the interviews and stuff that you've been doing recently and some of the other episodes that you've done is because you helped me recapture the essence of what it is that I get out of the hobby. 
Okay. And for me, I mean, I can say it in th- a really simple thing. Personally, for me, I want to go and explore fantastic worlds uh, that are actually challenging. Okay. So of the eight kind of uh, engagements of gaming that's part of the MDA theory, you know, for me, it's discovery, fantasy, and challenge that really gets me going. And I think that there are a bunch of other gamers out there in the big wide world for whom like narrative, expression, for example, they're, they're way more important as goals, right? The expression being like, you know, you get to create something unique and, and, acted out and and all of that and narrative being about building a story with all of the beginning middle end and rhythms of that and everything else and like you said i don't think it's either's wrong they're just different focuses you know yeah uh or foci really um so for me you know what what you've helped me to get to like listening to some of recent episodes is realizing that the world was way more important to me than anything else actually and as a gm that's what i want to present and what terrifies me is like how do you do that um but as a player if someone's going to run a game for me i have to be allowed to explore and i get bored when i can't right so that's where i'm at yeah it's and i struggle with it a little bit because when i start to sit down and start thinking about world building because it it sounds when, when we when we put it in those terms it then sounds like it contradicts some of the other things i say like whenever i tell people if they're going to sit down to, to play a game, you know, the start small um, piece of advice. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you start small if the world is the big major thing, right? Um, I don't think a person needs to sit down and create an entire world before they start a game. Yeah. But I think there needs to be a active um, goal towards that world being fleshed out and keeping what you're doing either what happens in the game reacting to it and and modifying how you're building your world as you go, or kind of having some sort of internal consistency with yourself on it. Um, So like I'm, I'm fine with, you know, starting with a town and maybe like half a dozen hexes around it. And that's the beginning of, of, of your world. But as things are happening, you have to making, making sure that stuff that you're presenting is, is consistently being built in. So as Mm -hmm. instead of doing a whole lot of prep, um, you know, the, the standard advice is prep for the next session. I think that's fine advice. It, it works well, but I think you also need to what's not prep in terms of prepping for the next session, but prepping for your own understanding of how the world works as continuously going feedback and looping what happened in the game into, okay, this is how the world is and let it react and, and change as it goes. But mm. um, eventually that will result in a much larger world. And I think it's, I think it's probably also important to not scrap your world every time you start a new game. Yeah. Even if it's even if it's imperfect, let it be imperfect and just start in a different area. And you can always you can always uh if you have to, you know, retcon something, you know, five games from now, if you're different with a whole different group of players, they may not know what happened with group one. So you can change group one stuff if you need to to make it fit the how this game has evolved for you. But um I think too often I'm definitely guilty of this, uh starting a world playing for a short while in it. And then discarding the world and creating all a whole new, and you don't get any history that way. You don't, you can't build anything up. Yeah, I think for me that the key isn't so much like size as it, and and everything as in scope. You know, as in like how many hexes is my hex crawl, or how many dungeons does it have, or whatever. For me, the world becomes more and more interesting as you go deeper, and I don't just mean like down in the down. dungeon. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, you know, as you start to do, like the GM is providing details and information and hints and suggestions that 
that leads you deeper and deeper and deeper into the law, the L-O-R-E law of the world, which, you know, is implied, if not explicitly stated. And you as a player get to unpick it all, right, and start theorizing. And and then I think there becomes this kind of feedback loop between the GM and the players about what's actually going on. Sometimes the GM really probably doesn't know, but they've got something and you grab it and, and fiddle around with it. And they have to then go and figure out, well, what's real you know and they might nick your ideas and import it into their world and all that stuff there's a feedback loop that's a really powerful thing but i think it's about depth you know and that's what fascinates me anyway um it's difficult to do that too without without falling into the trap of of becoming the lord dump storyteller right where without standing up and doing your monologue of like here's the ancient like being able to work that in naturally into the world Mm -hmm have it be engaging enough that the players will ask questions so you don't feel like you've made up this stuff for nothing. Mm. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult balance. I think the, I, I think you can easily fall into the, the trap of, hey, I wrote up this really cool family tree history for the royal family and all the things that's ever happened to them. So now there's going to be a bard in the bar that's going to tell the tales of this <laughs> royal family and you sit there and just yap at your players and they fall asleep. Um, like you, know, you have to be able to reveal that that nuance and that depth in a way that is part of the game and not just Mm. here, read my storybook about the world and then come back. We'll play afterwards. (laughs) Yeah. I think one of the best methods I've come across for that is from the Alexandria and just Alexander. And he talks about the, the three clue rule. And I think in a recent interview with him, we were chatting about, using that in dungeons to like, you know, real bring in depth, you know, dropping little pieces of clues into your, into your adventures and into interactions that you're having and into rumors and that kind of stuff that you only really need three for any conclusion that you want a player to make. So you scatter them around and they'll find them and they'll interpret them and they'll misinterpret them. Um, And, and that, that is where the fun lies there. You know, there, you may well have like worked it all out. Although I, I am increasingly of the view that you shouldn't work it all out in that way but but you know when you decide like for example that i have uh my misdemeanor game which one's using mithras right now but you know a long long while ago i decided there was this these this ancient like um rulers called the dragon kings and you know what it what i did is i started dropping in things they were finding all the time in my dungeons they kept finding tombs of dragon warriors with shields with dragon iconography and all of that kind of stuff and over time it just became the reality of the game world that there was this ancient empire ruled by actual dragons you know um and it, you know it was when the players started to figure that out you know and like put it together and they could see like hang on a minute this sword we found over here and that shield we found over there they're from the same they're from a matching pair if you like what happens if mm-hmm. we bring them together Aha. Um, and yes, they unlock some powers. Uh, you know, it's that kind of thing that really I think nourishes the depth of a world, makes it exciting. It's it's also fun. I mean, more so when you're playing in person than online, because I find I, I I like playing online because it gives you the ability to play with people from all over the place. But it, I find there's certain things that it misses, like that the the downtime for the GM of sitting at the table and just watching your players talk. Mm-hmm. Um, you get much less of that online than you do um, in person. But it's there's a certain special something whenever you're sitting down. Maybe you have not worked out everything at all. You've only gotten a very tiny sliver of an idea and you've seeded out some stuff like this. And then your players are talking to each other, trying to figure it out because they assume that you've got this all worked out in your head. Mm-hmm. And as you're sitting there, you're going, you're grabbing your pencil, you're going, that's a fantastic idea and you're jotting down the stuff that they're saying because what they're saying is is fantastic and then 
you know, you get, you're getting that collaborativeness. They don't even know they're the ones helping you collaborate on it. And then they get that nice joy of feeling like we've totally called that. That was awesome. Whenever they, whenever they figured out, they're like, I knew it. And you're like, yeah, you did. Cause you're the one who came up with the idea. <laughs> right. Absolutely. So. Anyway, coming back to this question of like um, open sourcing it. Um, yeah. I, I thought it was interesting that Chris's comment, Chris Goneman's comment was actually because he felt that you needed to have people who had shared a vision and he, and he, and he seemed to have the view that if I'm misunderstood, I hope I'm not misunderstanding, but it's another view that it's very hard to find people who will have a shared vision. It's easier to have a shared vision around a rule set than it is to have a shared vision about a world. And I was yelling at the, the screen at that point when he was saying that, going, no, clearly that's insane. <laughs> um, and the reason for that, for me, just very simply was was this. I just don't, I think actually his own uh, Morgan's Fort module, uh, I think the very first sort of um, basic fantasy adventure module, actually does it really well there's a there's a sort of a loose map a bit of a gazetteer three dungeons and a starting town but only one of those dungeons is actually on the map and as he himself said like it's up to the gm to put the guess the rest together and i don't know whether there's actually like the seeds of how to do this there no i don't want to speak for chris but i, I think where he was coming from on that was because i had phrased it as a world scale world mm -hmm. right so i think that's what he had in his mind is, is trying to create a world skill world mm -hmm. and with any open source project whether it be you know a gaming related one like basic fantasy or a software based one like say a linux distribution mm -hmm. the the leadership of that project has to be really strong on what their core vision of it is mm -hmm. and when it comes to something as as you know non-concrete so a rule set you know, there's 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 rules. <laughs> when you're coming to a world building, though, it's, it's it is more of like a very creative storytelling side of it, because um, there's a lot of flexibility that can happen over a course of a history if it, if you've got a, a large back history. So if if you don't have somebody who can hold their vision and make sure that everybody is kind of rowing in the same same direction on it, it be I can see how it'd be very difficult to do it. Um, I still think it can be done. Um, but I, I do agree with him. I think that if you're if you're looking at it from that from the scale point that I was talking about, like a Mastera type scale point, mm. um, you do kind of need to have a leadership on it that'll that'll run it through. Um, the smaller scale, I think, is totally doable, especially if you're willing to, you know, kind of kitchen sink it a little bit. But that's I think I think that's the other reason I kind of went down this whole route is I dislike the I, I don't like the Forgotten Realms. Um, mm -hmm. That might be, might be controversial to some, but I, the reason I don't like the Forgotten Realms isn't because of of you know what game systems it's a part of, but because it's a kitchen sink, um, and the fact that as soon as you try to constrain that down, some you get a lot of people up in arms, and and so even just seeing how people can get up in arms about that, now try to imagine that going, okay, guys, this is an open anybody can submit stuff. Oh no, that's that doesn't fit in, and seeing the drama that that will occur from from something like that. So you have to have the right people in the right mindset to to have a shared vision of what this is going to be in the end. I think a little bit, maybe yeah. not to the maybe not to a minutia, but to at least a shared vision of the core fundamentals of whatever the rule is. Like so, if you've got like a a ten commandments of this of this world, here's the ten commandments of how we want this to be structured, <laughs> um, and go that route. It it does work. I mean, I've I've seen it. Um, have you played the game Microscope? No, I own it, but I haven't played it. You should play it. It it it's when you read it, you can it, you can depending on on whether you've you're into that style of game or not, you can read that game and go, this seems a little hokey. 
but when you play it, it's a lot of fun, especially if you've got, uh, you know, three or four people that all kind of have that same mindset. Mm. Um, and at the beginning of that game, you set out a list of, yes, this is stuff that I will allow in the game. And here's a list of stuff that I don't. And each player gets to pick, you know, pick stuff that they do or don't want in the game. And that really sets up the whole, um, throughout the course of the game, everybody's operating off that same rule book, right? Of like, here are the rules of the world. Nobody's going to break the rules, but we can be creative inside that. And I think that that initial set of rules is important. And maybe that's what, I think that maybe that's what Chris was saying is that you had to have a shared agreement on what that initial set of rules are. It's mm. interesting. Right. So I want to circle back to the idea of the world as a character um, and just talk a little bit about why you think the sort of BX old D&D does that better? I think it does it better because it doesn't encourage the players to make their characters the main character. I don't think right. it, I don't think there's anything inherently about BX's rule set that makes the world better. Mm. I think that it allows the world to, be, to take focus because it doesn't make the character be the focus. Mm-hmm. So, um, if the, if that makes sense, I, I, I as I say that out loud, I don't know how well that's actually coming across from my point. But basically, I'm, I find the game system doesn't make the characters super in depth. Um, I've had discussions with other podcasters about you know my view on backstories, the fact that you know you just roll up a character quickly and you go, mm-hmm. and you discover your character as you go. I think inherently leads to your character becoming molded by the world that they're in rather than being something that you formed ahead of time. And now you're trying to fit into the world. So your character is now important to you and you're trying to fit it into the world rather than it being the way that you just roll up your basic stats and go. It's your characters being molded by the world. And I think that's what the system allows. But as far as like, does BX make worlds itself better? No, I think, I think you could get an equally fantastic world if you were a dm creating it for bx as you could for any other game system it's just about how the players interact with it and what what the uh driving motivation of the players are and that's really telling um i think there's two things that i kind of want to pick up on there because earlier you talked about the intermediate stage between like what you see is rampant individualism today um then there's the party and then there's obviously the world as character and this idea, I think in BX, and I think in earlier D&D generally, is very much the party is the entity, right? That you have to get together with a bunch of friends and you really have to collaborate and cooperate to, to survive. Um, and I think that's really important. But the second thing that I wanted to pick up on is this idea that the world's going to mold your party. And I, I also think that um, there's a detachment from the world that comes from the original and early editions of the game uh in that you are dropped into the world with no ties you know like as in you're not connected to any organizations you don't beholden to any lord baron or whatever you know whatever it is in the world that's a power you you are essentially this bunch of random adventurers who sort of appear in town and then start doing whatever it is you want to do and and one level you're you're not constrained at all. You, as a player, you could take any choices you want. Um, and yet, you know, you are constrained by the fact that you're probably a level one character with like one to six hit points or something stupid. Um, and, you know, with a bunch of other guys and you've basically got to survive together. Um, and I think that's a different dynamic. Yeah, I kind of look at it as um, if you're familiar with the TV show Quantum Leap, mm-hmm. I, I've always looked at, at 
that that phenomenon that you're talking about how the characters just appear mm. is that you as a, you know me as kevin when i take over a character it's almost like i quantum leaped into them so they may have had stuff in the back but i'm not aware of it because i just mm-hmm. jumped into them so now i'm exploring the world afresh for them and you know i'm going to be trying to do my best to fit in and then figure out where my alliances are going to lie um, based off of what's happening around me. So that's kind of how I've always viewed it rather than me being actually this person. And I've, there was a whole time before I took over their thing with history and, and stuff. Instead, it's like, you know, me as myself have been transposed into this player and, you know, over time their personality becomes available to me or, you know, I come to understand their personality um, more Cause there's been times where I've come in, I've done the whole, like, Oh, here's a cool backstory. I had this cool character mm-hmm. idea and I'll get like maybe a session or two into the game. And that idea I had, because I came up with it on my own, doesn't fit well with the group or it doesn't fit well mm-hmm. with the setting. And just the way that I play as a player, I'm reacting to everything else. So all the, all the you know, character quirks that I had pre-planned just don't apply. So they don't come up. I, and two or three sessions in, it's a completely different person than what I had maybe previously planned. So for me, I'm like, well, then why am I wasting my time planning that person? I'll just, you know, find out who it is as it goes. And it's a nice surprise. Like I like being surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, oh, that's who this person is. Cool. Um, and kind of going that route. And again, you're hitting the discovery button. You know, yeah. Um, this thing of like, we're not just exploring the world, but we get to explore the characters, how they relate to it, and 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 what they can and can't do you know just through trial and error yeah like i i i was playing um i can't remember what what game it was now but we, we walked into a cave and there was like a, a a giant set of bugs i just decided at that point i'm like oh yeah my character is a phobia about bugs and so like it was i was playing a like a, a tanky fighter type type character and i was like yeah he doesn't want to go in there he has no there's bugs he's he's, he's terribly afraid of it and and so we just got I could just on the spot decided that it just, it changed how the whole thing went and that just became like a big trope for him. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, I, I, if I would have thought of that beforehand, I don't know if it would have kind of landed the same or anything like that. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I think, I, I think being able to react to it and just discover who it is as it goes. I don't know how that relates to what your original question was at all now, as I think <laughs> about this, but, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I like the fact that, um, you know, as a individual player, you can react as you go and, you don't need to have all that back back baggage. Mm. It sounds to me like we're talking a lot here about the world as you know uh, the character as an entity as something you know, deeper, bigger, which we definitely seem to sort of you know share as a as a uh, an interest, I guess, within the role playing game stuff. But also that is playing down of the character, which is interesting. Is that do you think because we're GMs more than we're players? <laughs> maybe no, maybe I because I I think. The other thing to, to consider the world as a character as well is that I think that when the table has broken, when the game is over for the for the night and everybody's gone home and the GM is gathering up their notes and, and reviewing what happened on the session, the GM then plays their own solo game of sorts of going, mm-hmm. okay, this is all the stuff that happened. How did the world react to this? Mm-hmm. They did this. How does that impact so-and-so's plan of world domination? And how did, how did this nation over here react to this person's like, you know, so the DM plays their own little mini game where they're building that character of the world outside of it. And yeah, maybe I value that more because I DM more than I play. Um, mm. And so maybe that's, that's where, where that comes from. And, and I forget who mentioned this ages ago, like a month or two ago where they're saying there needs to be more 
perspective taken from the player side because a lot of podcasts and everything we're know we're talking from the mm-hmm. gm side um and there isn't enough maybe discussion from the player side um so yeah i th- I, I think maybe that's why that opinion is out there and, and maybe for the players all the the juice is in the other stuff so maybe maybe mm-hmm. i get different juice when i'm playing because i'm approaching it from sitting in the gm seat mm. maybe the way we fix that is we get more people to gm well yeah although <laughs> Isn't it weird in the podcast? If you listen to a podcast about gaming, you just imagine that like 90% of people who play role-playing games are GMs and you wonder where the players are. Mm -hmm. Um, Although statistics suggest it's the other way around. Um, But hey, it's a weird thing, isn't it? The GMs talk about it a lot. Um, And maybe that's about promoting our games. I don't know. Uh, I I think it's because when you're playing as a GM, at least I, I tend to, I don't tell my players a lot of the cool stuff I'm doing in the background, right? Cause you want them to discover mm. it, but you've got all this cool, cool stuff that you're like, <laughs> I want to talk about this. <laughs> right. So who do you talk to it about? You're well, you're either going onto forums and websites that specialize in that, or you're going onto a podcast or something. So you're, you know, this talking about it is a way for the DM to go, I've got this cool stuff. That I don't know if it's ever going to get discovered by the players, but I want to talk about this cool stuff I've done or I've thought about. Um, Whereas the players can just talk about anything because you know they're not there's no secrecy from them to the GM and the secrecy is all the other way around, right? Mm. Yeah, maybe so. Well, I'm kind of conscious of time. Um, you know, we have a bit. Uh, is there anything that you particularly wanted to raise um, about this idea of world building, worlds, and the other stuff that we haven't talked about so far? I think, I think the the key thing for me with with the worlds, uh, as I mentioned before, is, is to try to make it as a history. I actually heard a really cool idea because um, I've kind of circling around this whole idea of worlds recently, and somebody came up with the what happens if you just to to get that common understanding of what of what a world would be is just pick Earth in say like you know uh, one A.D. or one B.C. in that time frame, and just say something has happened now, and our histories have diverged, and you know, introduce the fantastical and okay the world is as it was at that point and use tropes based off of that i think uh that's interesting because you don't have to worry about um you know that that shared common understanding and you've already got the whole backstory of of you know prehistory as at least as best as we know it done for you and you can just kind of operate from there i know it was an interesting idea but i think i think history is probably the best way to describe world building and stuff as you're trying to discover a history and i think that's what the game at least the games i really like that have in-depth worlds are all about is but creating more of that history so that you can then talk about it later on and that's the story mm. yeah it's the you know the the stories emerge out of play right and then become kind of the hist- ongoing and growing history of the world that you've got and as you said earlier if you can be disciplined unlike me and not create a new world for every game and come back to your world over and over and over and over, then you really will build something with, with breadth and depth. Yeah. I think it'll just kind of naturally occur. Um, but I think the, I think it, it is probably a mistake for most people. There are definitely people that can pull it off, but I know I can't. Um, <laughs> and I know a lot of other people have tried and have expressed struggles with it is don't try to create that entire world before you sit down to play, mm. do something small, play the play is what you're there for at the beginning and you can use your your play to build the world as you go it's just you have to be conscious about you know what is which one is in the driver's seat um and and uh 
balancing it out and re- revising it as you go. Good stuff. Okay. Um, so any sort of last words that you want to chat about generally? Um, just wanted to thank you for bringing me on. It was great to, to be on this side of the mic for a little while. Um, and just, and, and not have any, like, uh, I, I didn't have a big list of questions or anything. I was able to, to riff off of, of what you were doing. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it was a lot of fun to come on and I hope, uh, hope everyone continues listening to, you know, this and, and it, I hope it sparks a little bit of discussion because I'd like to hear other people's views on it as well. So hopefully people who are listening to this, if they've got podcasts or blogs or anything else, they start talking a little bit about world building, um, you know, look at some of the various tools that are out there for it and just create cool stuff and share it. I, I love seeing other people's creations and kooky ideas and, you know, stealing like a, like a madman. <laughs> Absolutely. And I just want to say thanks for what you're doing as well. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, it sparks new direction for me, all fresh energy, I guess, for me in my hobby as well. So and I think we all need that. Um, I was actually kind of musing um, on the GEMS journal uh, just a few days ago, and this would be weeks back for those who are patrons by the time this gets out there. But um, I've, you know, I've been through a bit of a tough time kind of losing impetus, losing energy. And um it's interesting when you sort of open yourself up to different ideas, you listen to different people, you know, that can reinvigorate, spark something off. And for me, you know, it was listening to you talk about the, uh, is it AC, I want to say AC1, um, the in the Yes, the Shady Dragon Inn. That's the one. Um, yeah. Your suggestion of why not have that as a pocket universe. Um, just ping. What a great idea. Yeah, I, I, I loved how that kind of how that kind of came together that was just me i had literally just finished watching john wick mm. um and then kind of picked up that that book off my shelf and i was like yeah these would work together really well but yeah i, I like the idea of having things like that because it doesn't need to be if i had sat down to create a world i wouldn't have thought of a pocket universe because to me that seemed seems out of scope of what i would probably do yeah. but um it, once I once that idea clicked, it was like, oh yeah, that's great. The other thing that's kind of re- reinvigorated me a little bit too, because uh, I was mentioning bringing stuff in with my son, is there's a game called Mouse Ritter um, that yeah. we recently have played some, and making the world small, uh, turning it to a mouse sized world, and having him explore from there. It changed his gaming behavior. He he stopped being a murder hobo, which right. was hilarious, um, and started you know realizing threats. But it really changed how he viewed the game, and and made me think that I've got to, I've got to change how I introduce people to games a little bit in terms of scaling threats and and awe, uh, you know, mm-hmm. get, giving those those awe moments so they can kind of actually understand where they fit in the world at a certain point. I, I think doing that with him showed me that I was doing that poorly in other spots. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, playing other systems, I think maybe every once in a while, uh, kind of can can spark a realization like that yeah i had a similar thing um it's oh crikey what's the name again? a magical kitties that's the one um which you know again an unlikely title atlas games uh, magical kitties um save the world that's um you know about magical kitties and um yeah, again changes perspective it's not about animals isn't it that where you change like yeah. you said the scale but also the the type of challenge and in this case the magical kitties are you know like talking cats who the humans don't realize like save the world all the time and they're sort of doing it behind everybody's back of the 
two rules basically and one of them is you can't let the humans in on the secret um but a lot of fun i've you know mucking about with that with my wife and um it's just a lot of fun to play in a different you know in the modern world but with a different angle on it and like you just said kind of makes you think about things differently yeah i I think just being open to it i i know i have fallen into into the curmudgeon well like i said i I had i've had that rule and i've broken it several times where i'm like i've had all the game systems i'm going to have that rule is probably a mistake. I probably should not have that rule because I think mm. trying out different stuff um, changes perspectives and, and gives you the ability to go in and do other things. So, yeah, I guess be be, be more open. <laughs> mm. Although for me, it's not so much the rules and the game system as the world, you know, the the characters' world interaction thing that has made the difference in in my case. Yeah, uh, and. I agree. Like, there's there's been times where I've played a different system, and and some of the rules are are cool, and they will inspire a house rule for me. But I but playing those other systems, it's not so much about the rules; it's the fact that they they do put themselves in different settings that maybe my my classic BX style games aren't going to be in generic fantasy land. Maybe they're going someplace else, or they're trying a different take on things. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, I think it's just good to be open with that sort of thing. Well, Kevin from the Red Caps podcast, thanks very much for your time. It's been great chatting to you. Thank you very much for having me. Big thank you once again to Kevin from the Red Caps podcast for coming and sharing his thoughts with us. And I'll stick the link to his podcast in the show notes. Please do go and check it out. If you have any questions or comments, call in via speakpipe.com slash roleplayrescue and leave a 90-second message. Thank you once again to John from Tell of the Manticore for the Roleplay Rescue theme music. Thanks also to all the Roleplay Rescue patrons who support the show through patreon.com slash rpgrescue. Most of all, thank you to you for showing up and listening. My name is Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. Game on.